A note to my podcast feed listeners, what you're about to hear is another episode from the new series I've been working on called Short Reads. Short Reads is basically just me reading a passage from a work of philosophical literature and then offering a few brief insights into the text afterward to help you think about the text and to find ways to apply the concepts in your own life. These episodes are released weekly, and as an Anchor podcast listener, I encourage you to keep listening as long as you like them. If you're finding the series especially enjoyable, I'd like to invite you to head on over to my Locals community page at exitingthecave.locals.com, where you can become a subscriber. A $3 subscription will give you early access to these episodes, as well as to my videos, to my philosophical musings in essay form, and especially to a community of other like-minded listeners where you can discuss these podcasts or any other philosophical topics you find compelling. I'm looking forward to meeting you over there. Now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of Exiting the Cave Short Reads. We're working our way through Book 3 of The Consolation of Philosophy by Boethius, and this week we're working on Chapter 2. If you'll remember from last week, the promise from philosophy was that she was going to treat Boethius to something familiar to his palate first, before presenting true happiness to him. Listen in, and when we return, I'll explain how she was relying heavily on Aristotle for this preparatory lesson. For a little space, she remained in a fixed gaze, withdrawn, as it were, into the august chamber of her mind. Then she thus began... All mortal creatures, in those anxious aims which find employment in so many varied pursuits, though they take many paths, yet strive to reach one goal, the goal of happiness. Now the good is that which, when man hath got, he can lack nothing further. This it is which is the supreme good of all, containing within itself all particular good, so that if anything is still wanting thereto, This cannot be the supreme good, since something would be left outside which might be desired. Tis clear, then, that happiness is a state perfected by the assembling together of all good things. To this state, as we have said, all men try to attain, but by different paths. For the desire of the true good is naturally implanted in the minds of men. Only error leads them aside out of the way in pursuit of the false. Some, deeming it the highest good to want for nothing, spare no pains to attain affluence. Others, judging the good to be that to which respect is most worthily paid, strive to win the reverence of their fellow citizens by the attainment of official dignity. Some there are who fix the chief good in supreme power. These either wish themselves to enjoy sovereignty or try to attach themselves to those who have it. Those, again, who think renown to be something of supreme excellence are in haste to spread abroad the glory of their name either through the arts of war or of peace. A great many measure the attainment of good by joy and gladness of heart. These think it the height of happiness to give themselves over to pleasure. 
Others there are again who interchange the ends and means, one with the other, in their aims. For instance, some want riches for the sake of pleasure and power. Some covet power either for the sake of money or in order to bring renown to their name. So it is on these ends, then, that the aim of human acts and wishes is centered, and on others like to these. For instance, noble birth and popularity, which seem to compass a certain renown. Wife and children, which are sought for the sweetness of their possession. While as for friendship, the most sacred kind, indeed, is counted in the category of virtue, not of fortune. But other kinds are entered upon for the sake of power or enjoyment. And as for bodily excellences, it is obvious that they are to be ranged with the above. For strength and stature surely manifest power. Beauty and fleetness of foot bring celebrity. Health brings pleasure. It is plain, then, that the only object sought for in all these ways is happiness. For that which each seeks in preference to all else, that is in his judgment the supreme good. And we have defined the supreme good to be happiness. Therefore, that state which each wishes in preference to all others is in his judgment happy. Thou hast then before thine eyes something like a scheme of human happiness. Wealth, rank, power, glory, pleasure. Now Epicurus, from a sole regard to these considerations, with some consistency concluded the highest good to be pleasure, because all other objects seem to bring some delight to the soul. But to return to human pursuits and aims, man's mind seeks to recover its proper good, in spite of the mistiness of its recollection, but, like a drunken man, knows not by what path to return home. Think you they are wrong who strive to escape want? Nay, truly there is nothing which can so well complete happiness as a state abounding in all good things, needing nothing from outside, but wholly self-sufficing. Do they fall into error who deem that which is best to be also best deserving to receive the homage of reference? Not at all. That cannot possibly be vile and contemptible to attain, which the endeavors of nearly all mankind are directed. Then is power not to be reckoned in the category of the good? Why, can that which is plainly more efficacious than anything else be esteemed a thing feeble and void of strength? Or is renown to be thought of no account? Nay, it cannot be ignored that the highest renown is constantly associated with the highest excellence. And what need is there to say that happiness is not haunted by care and gloom, nor exposed to trouble and vexation, since that is a condition we ask of the very least of things from the possession and enjoyment of which we expect delight? So then, these are the blessings men wish to win. They want riches, rank, sovereignty, glory, pleasure, because they believe that by these means they will secure independence, reverence, power, renown, and joy of heart. Therefore, it is the good which men seek by such diverse courses. And herein is easily shown the might of nature's power, since although opinions are so various and discordant, yet they agree in cherishing good as the end.
how the might of nature sways all the world in ordered ways, how resistless laws control each least portion of the whole. Fain would I in sounding verse on my pliant strings rehearse. Lo, the lion captive tain meekly wears his gilded chain, yet though he by hand be fed, though a master's whip he dread, but if once the taste of gore whet his cruel lips once more, straight his slumbering fierceness wakes, with one roar his bonds he breaks, and first wreaks his vengeful force on his trainer's mangled course. And the woodland songster pent in forlorn imprisonment, though a mistress lavish care, store of honeyed sweets prepare. Yet if in his narrow cage, as he hops from bar to bar, he should spy the woods afar, cool with sheltering foliage, all these dainties he will spurn, to the woods his heart will turn. Only for the woods he longs, pipes the woods in all his songs. To rude force the sapling bends, while the hand its pressure lends, if the hand its pressure slack, straight the supple wood springs back. Phoebus in the western main sinks, but swift his car again, by a secret path is borne to the wonted gates of morn. Thus are all things seen to yearn in due time for due return, and no order fixed may stay, save which in the appointed way joins the end to the beginning in a steady cycle spinning. In this chapter, Boethius is engaged in a lengthy debate with Aristotle over the nature of the summum bonum, the highest good. The conceptual parallels between the Consolation and Book I of the Nicomachean Ethics are quite striking. For example, let's compare what the two have to say about the pursuit of happiness. Here's Boethius. All mortal creatures in those anxious aims which find employment in so many varied pursuits, though they take many paths, yet strive to reach one goal, the goal of happiness. Now, the good is that which, when a man hath got, he can lack nothing further. This it is which is the supreme good of all, containing within itself all particular good, so that if anything is still wanting thereto, this cannot be the supreme good since something would be left outside which might be desired. Tis clear, then, that happiness is a state perfected by the assembling together of all good things. And it is plain, then, that the only object sought for in all these ways is happiness. For that which each seeks in preference to all else, that is in his judgment the supreme good. And we have defined the supreme good to be happiness. Therefore, that state which each wishes in preference to all others is, in his judgment, happy. Here's Aristotle. Every art and every inquiry, and similarly every action and choice, is thought to aim at some good, 
and for this reason the good has rightly been declared to be that at which all things aim. If there is some end of the things we do, which we desire for its own sake, everything else being desired for the sake of this, clearly this must be the chief good. Now happiness is held to be such a thing above all else. For this, we choose it always for itself and never for the sake of something else. But honor, pleasure, reason, and every virtue we choose indeed for themselves. For if nothing resulted from them, we should still choose each of them. But we choose them also for the sake of happiness, judging that through them we shall be happy. Happiness, on the other hand, no one chooses for the sake of these, nor in general for anything other than itself. In the end, however, Aristotle is going to lose this debate, at least in Boethius's eyes. Though they use the same term, Boethius and Aristotle have very different understandings of what is meant by summum bonum. For Aristotle, the good only makes sense in relation to an object it describes, and in the case of living things, in relation to the end at which it aims. All living things aim at their own perfection through the maturation process. But the term perfection is a bit misleading here, however. Aristotle does not mean this in any absolute ideal sense. He means it in the sense of completion or realization. The technical term would be actualization. In other words, perfection for Aristotle is the complete actuality of all potentiality in a being. Whatever it is you're capable of achieving in your life is your potential. Your perfection, then, would be turning all of those potentialities into actualities. But simply maturing to adulthood, as in an acorn turning into an oak, is not all that Aristotle means when it comes to humans. The more complete the life, the better the life. Thus, any life with unrealized potential would be an incomplete life. One has a duty, therefore, not simply to use the muscles and the mind provided by adulthood, but also to maximize the use of them. That requires continual work to refine and improve on their use as you mature. That effort requires the virtues. The more virtuous the life, then, the more good the life. When we look back upon our lives in our old age, wherever we recognize this good, we will recognize the eudaimonia present in those moments. That is the happiness that Aristotle thought was possible. Happiness was not something you aimed at directly. It was something you achieved as an emergent property of having attained human excellence or perfection. What Boethius has in mind, however, is very different. Rather than a relative and terrestrial understanding of the summum bonum, Boethius sees the summum bonum as an absolute ideal. Though he does incorporate a teleology, it is a teleology that is quite distinct from Aristotle's. This chapter of the Consolation sets the stage for that divergence from Aristotle. As we progress through the readings, it will become more evident that Boethius sees Aristotle's talos for man as only a stepping stone to the next rung on the ladder of divine enlightenment. Boethius identifies the good with God himself, and as we saw with the verse on divine love at the end of Book 2, 
contemplation of the divine order is how we discover the summum bonum. Thus, what for Aristotle are merely subordinate forms of good life, the pleasure-seeking, the honor-seeking, the wealth-seeking, Boethius takes to be false pursuits of the good itself. Aristotle would have said that the man of great wealth could indeed have lived a life of eudaimonia if he perfected the various virtues associated with the life of wealth, prudence, magnanimity, and so forth. Boethius, on the other hand, says no. The life of the merchant or the soldier or the aesthete are not good lives in and of themselves. In order to become good, they must be oriented toward the contemplation, indeed the emulation, of the divine love evident in the order of creation. This may be a kind of confusion on Boethius's part. What Aristotle argues is that the ends of these other pursuits are indeed goods, but they are not exclusively ends. They are both ends and means. In other words, they are things we pursue both for their own sake and for the sake of something else. I would like a nice suit of clothes so that I can impress my employer. I would like the approval of my social peers so that I can gain access to new opportunities, and so forth. But happiness, on Aristotle's view, is not for anything except itself. Aristotle considers something desired for its own sake to be superior to that which is desired for the sake of something else. Happiness being the only thing we seek which has no utility of its own means it is the most superior of pursuits. Boethius takes this in a prescriptive sense, and I'm not convinced Aristotle meant it in quite that way. In other words, utilitarian goods are to be shunned wherever possible in favor of the absolute good. I should wish not to have a nice suit of clothes if it means I must pay for it by forgetting the knowledge of the divine ordinance and alienating myself from the ultimate good of striving for reunion with God. But perhaps judging it a confusion is a mistake. Boethius is taking his cues from Neoplatonic Christianity here much more than he is from Aristotle's pagan ethics. The overarching argument of Book 3 makes this crystal clear. Susan Ford Wiltshire, in her 1972 essay on Boethius and the Summum Bonum, lays out the syllogism quite nicely. 1. Human beings agree that God, the ruler of all things, is good and further that he is perfectly good. 2. But the perfect good is also true happiness. 3. There cannot be two perfect highest goods, because if one lacked anything of the other, it would not be perfect. 4. Therefore, true happiness and God being both the same thing are both the summum bonum, and the supreme good is thus identical with supreme divinity. In short, if we take the God of Augustine as a given, then this argument is a convincing case against Aristotle's conception of the summum bonum. Indeed, one could extrapolate farther and suggest that Aristotle's own prime mover could serve this same function. Being actus purus, as Aquinas would later argue, he would be the most perfect being because he has no potentialities yet to be actualized. And if happiness is the most perfected state of existence, being a state in which all actualities are completed, then reunion with God is the ultimate and absolute good and the state of final eternal bliss.
It seems fitting that we have arrived at the Summum Bonum in Book 3. Boethius here is echoing the poetical structure of Horace's five-act drama. Book 3 represents the peripatia, literally the reversal of fortune. Yet again, another reference to Fortuna. This peripatia could be a turn from good to bad or from bad to worse, according to Horace. In Boethius's case, obviously, it is toward the good, from grief to serenity. In the coming chapters, Lady Philosophy will, as she did previously with the false forms of good life, take us through the false forms of the good itself. Some of this will seem repetitious of what we've already heard. But the key point to keep in mind as we move forward is that each of these is seen as a part of a whole. Given that the summum bonum is an indivisible perfection, since perfection cannot be broken into parts, it thus means that each is not merely an incomplete good, but a false good. This is fundamentally why Boethius differs with Aristotle. It all goes back to the old argument between the one and the many. As we proceed forward, also notice how the shape of the narrative is changing. In mirroring previous chapters, Boethius is drawing for us a literary triangle. We are presently at the apex of that triangle and are about to begin a descent. This is why some of the themes and arguments are repeated. But in our descent back through old themes, there is also an ascension. Boethius, in an echo of Plato's Mino, has recollected his knowledge of the good, and so can look back on prior questions with new wisdom. That looking back is another theme that will become important later on. Think of the story of Orpheus and Eurydice and what happened when Orpheus looked back. And on that ominous note... I'll see you all next week.